Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to New Valley. Uh, my name is Scott, and it's so good to be with you guys. Uh, we're going to be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 this morning as we continue our series in, in 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn there, and if not, uh, it's going to be up on the, on the screen, and it's in your bulletin as well. So chapter 6, verse 14 through uh, 7, 1, and it's another one of these classic um, passages that we have in 2 Corinthians. Let's read it together, and then we'll be diving into it. Paul writes this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that I want us to see today is that our lives are built on a series of decisions, if you think about it, at different pivotal moments and seasons in our life. Who will listen to? Who will we be listening to for life's greatest decisions? I think this is one of the key components of what Paul is getting to here this morning. Who will we listen to for life's greatest decisions? By the time you reach high school, uh, and this is heavy on my heart as I've got two high schoolers in my house, you get to the point, you kind of think when you're raising kids, like, I'm going to have them for 18 years, okay? And you kind of do the math, and I've been doing this for a while, right? So they turn 11, I'm like, all right, seven more years, and they, you know, you start doing the math, and, and they're going to be out of my house, but here's the reality, so uh, children, parents of younger children know this, you don't actually get them for 18 years, you think you do, and technically they will sleep at your house, and they will take money from you, and you will feed them for 18 years, way more than that actually, but the reality is they will not be in your house for 18 years, right? You know that. By about 15, they're, they're pushing out, and by the time they get their driver's license, if, if they are so blessed to do so and to have means of transport, they're gone. And, and they will stop in to say hi occasionally. They will wave as they drive by. But it's not a full 18 years. And at that moment, you realize, I don't have the influence on these human beings that I once had. And more and more, what has happened is their influence is coming from their peers. You know that's true as you look back at your own life, right? So students... I challenge you to be thinking, when you turn like t from 12 to like that 15 rage, and then you start to get your license that time period, who will be your greatest influence in life? And the decision you make at that moment in high school, who is going to influence me? And it doesn't have to only be your parents. It's a healthy thing for that to change and evolve, and for other mentors and peers to start having an influence on you. But who will that be? Will that friend group that you choose to connect to, is it going to be a group that will actually fuel your faith or hinder it? That's 
a decision that you're going to have to make. Will you go to college? You're going to make that decision eventually, some of you. Some of you will choose yes, some of you will choose no, but if you do, where will you go? When you get there, what friend group, again, will you connect to? And will you build relationships built around those that are going to help fuel your faith or detract from your faith? Will my faith impact who I connect to, what community I will be in, who I'm going to be living and doing life with? It keeps going. Who will I date? Who will I marry? What career will I pursue? What, what am I going to do with my life? What is going to be the aim and the goal of my life? And will my faith actually make a difference on any of those decisions? Is my faith going to be the thing that in, in, is in impacting that in the, the community that I'm in? Are they going to help me make that decision or, or not? Now you're married. Okay, we're moving fast here, right? I mean... <laughs> Who will you connect to? What relationships will you be pursuing? You're busy, man. You're busy with work. You, you're trying to make it financially. You're a young couple. You don't have kids yet, but like you're trying to figure this out. Who are you going to connect to? Are you going to find community? And it no longer just pops up organically like it did when you were younger in high school. Just friend groups appear kind of thing. And, and in college, there's just friendship and community everywhere. But now you're working, pursuing a career, paying off bills, trying to make it, maybe buy a house, Get moving forward, and it's like it takes work to build community. It doesn't just pop up organically, right? you got to find it. you got to look for it. What community will you look for? Will you pursue it? Will you be patient to find a community that will assist you, encourage you, be important to you as you make decisions about the person you're going to be and your faith? And then as a growing family, what relationships will shape how you parent? How, who's going to be there to help you? Who's going to pour in your life? And all these decisions we make, and, and I, let's, let's skip towards uh, empty nesters and retirement. What will your life be all about in retirement? What will your life be about when you're an empty nester? Is it just going to be about you and stuff and pursuing, you know, just pleasure and ease? Or are you going to build your life around a community that will continue to pour into you to enable you to grow in your faith? There's all these pivotal moments in life, and the decisions we make at those pivotal moments will help determine whether we're growing in our faith or not. And to me, the main way that I have grown, I think truly the main way, besides the Word of God being poured into my life, it has been God's people. The main way that I've actually learned to grow in God's Word has been through God's people. It's through providential relationships, you guys. It's to the, the people that God has placed in our life and the decisions that we've made to connect to certain people or to, to connect with other people. It's the people in our lives. There's two things I want us to see from our passage this morning, and there's so much more in this passage, but I just want to focus on two things. First of all, the pursuit of holiness is not an optional pathway for the follower of Jesus. It's not an optional pathway. And second, our most intimate relationships have the power to tear down or build up our pursuit of holiness, our faith, in essence. It's, it's really not an optional path, A. And B, our, our relationships, those most intimate relationships, there's power in them, Paul is saying, and, and there's power to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our pursuit of becoming more Christ-like by walking with Him, and they also have the power to tear down our faith, to destroy our faith, to diminish our faith. First, we'll look this morning at the pursuit of holiness 
It's not an optional pathway for followers of Jesus. We're going to unpack this more. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Paul says, since we have these promises, and he lists multiple promises from the Old Testament, and he kind of piecemeals several different Old Testament passages in that section there. And then at the end of it, in chapter 7, verse 1, he concludes our, our section or our passage this morning by saying, since we have those promises of being the sons of God and the children of God, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And and notice, though, that it's flowing out of the promises of God that we are his children and his daughters. Let's go back to that passage in verse 17 and 18, where he says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, pursue holiness and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. But then he says this, these assurances that are, that are made so clear in the gospel, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So in light of that grace, in light of that mercy and kindness and that new relationship, you are now the sons and daughters of God. He's our father. In light of those good promises, he says, let us live lives of holiness. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holiness to completion. And that word for completion, it means the the end, the goal, the pursuit, like the, the thing that we're aiming for. The Hebrew word for holy, it, it meant to cut, and it has the idea of being separate, that God was holy. And, and that idea of cut comes from cutting a covenant, that God's holy covenant is to, to cut. God is holy. He's other than us. He's distinct and separate. And the God of the Bible, there is no other like him. And the Lord in the Old Testament, one of the repeated phrases is, for, uh, for God is holy, but then God calling his people also to be holy as God is holy. And Peter re- repeats those themes as well. Be holy, for I am holy. Paul is saying, and he always says this in, in such a beautiful way. And what I love about Paul is he, he, he simultaneously says things like, your relationship with God is built entirely on grace. It is built on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not by anything that we do to be saved, but then he also, with his right hand, if he says that in the left hand, is saying, look, but we also then, in light of that good news of grace, are called to live lives of, of holiness, of, of pursuit of, of not being okay with where you stand, but to pursue Jesus. Like Paul says constantly, like he is the one, for he is the, the human reason why I know about the grace of God. Would, you would agree, if you've been following Jesus for a while and reading the Bible, it is because of the Apostle Paul that I know the gospel inside and out. But it's, it's never to diminish the reality that Paul also says, I buffet my body, I discipline myself, I run the race so that I might not be outpaced to follow, to follow after hard after God. These two things go together, and, and Paul is showing us that. What is holiness? Jesus fully demonstrated what holiness looks like in a human being so beautifully. It's not just some ethereal concept. Holiness is Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus taught this and he lived it. And it's loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. 
it's, it's to love God. It's to be growing in our love for God and to, in growth of loving our neighbor. And Jesus shows us so beautifully what that looks like in a human being. And so a few things I want us to see. Jesus' followers are to grow in holiness, but they're not to be growing in a holier-than-thou self-righteous attitude. It's the opposite of that. True holiness, according to Jesus, is not being self-righteous. It is being filled with the love of God and love for other people. It's loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so many people have stayed away from church for so long because they feel like they're so tired of hypocrisy. But the beautiful thing about true holiness, loving God, loving your neighbor, is that is the opposite of hypocrisy, is it not? If the people of God were to truly pursue true holiness, to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbors themselves, think of how much hypocrisy would be undermined and, and how little of it we would see. God's call for us to be holy is his desire to make us whole, to bring us shalom. And when I hear a call that Paul is giving, and so it's my duty to preach God's word, to not preach what I feel like talking about or whatever. And so one of the great things about preaching mainly through books of the Bible, which is what we do here, is I have to preach on subjects I might not choose to preach on. When Paul is calling us to holiness, then I repeat that like a mockingbird. I'm telling you what the Bible is saying. And it's not easy because when I hear calls to holiness, I also feel this weight and this tension of realizing I am not completely holy. That I am still on this long journey of learning to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my neighbor as myself, to, to have Paul's passion and desire to love him with this kind of intensity. So God is calling us to be holy, but he is calling us into a good and beautiful life, the life that he intends for every one of us to have, and that our happiness and his holiness are not juxtaposed. They're actually the same thing, ultimately. The way we define happiness, maybe not so much, but ultimately God's design for happiness, his joy that he wants for us, these things are not in competition with one another. They actually go together. God desires for you to be full whole, living a beautiful life, the life he intends for us, and that is found not in just our own independent pursuit of happiness or joy, but in his definition of what that looks like, and to find our wholeness, our shalom in him. And so I just pause at this moment and ask a question to all of us, including myself. Right now, not a year ago, Uh, Not 10 years ago, not a month ago, not a week ago even. Like literally right this moment, are you self-aware enough to know um, what's the aim of your heart like right now? And you can back it up a week or two and say, generally speaking, like right now, where's my heart in this? Like am I I feeling a pursuit, a, a desire to know the Lord? What is your heart saying right now? What are you noticing in your heart right now? What are you feeling right now? Are you tender to the idea that God is calling us to love him, to walk with him, and, and to understand that this is not sort of an optional thing, that, that some people should follow Jesus more faithfully and pursue him like this, but others don't have to. This, the Apostle Paul just doesn't play that game. Apostles should follow Jesus and pursue him. Uh, disciples, pastors, elders, but, but not the common follower of Jesus. Paul just doesn't talk that way. 
he calls all of us, every one of us, to be his disciples, to follow. Right now, how's your heart? If it's cold, pray. Ask the Lord to warm the fire of your heart. It always has to start with honesty. Where are you right now? What would you say to the Lord? Secondly, and this is sort of the, the main passage that is well known in this section. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The main point here is this. Our most intimate relationships have the power to tear down or build up our call to follow Jesus, to pursue him, to know him. That's true holiness, right? Our, our most intimate relationships, not every relationship has the same impact, but the, the greater, if you start with a triangle and a base, like at the bottom, like least intimacy to most intimate, let's face it, as you go up the triangle, the, the more intimate you get with somebody, the more influence they have on you. In those relationships, Paul would say, and it's just true of all human relationships, the ability and the power to build you up or to tear you down in every area of life, but particularly we're talking about this morning, our faith in Jesus Christ and our pursuit of knowing him more, loving him more, being found in him more, pursuing, dare we say, holiness, which is to know God. He writes in verses 14 through 16, a very intense word, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And then he goes on and quotes this section from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was a literal temple, right, that was built to worship God, that, that God's people in the Old Testament would go in Israel to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, they had several times a year where there would be feasts and festivals where they would go to the temple. Within the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, and within the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant of God. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, and most of us only know about this from Indiana Jones, if we're honest, right, <laughs> is this box, and they did a really good job. That's really what it looked like in the movie, and probably the rest of the stuff that went down is a little different, but like inside there was the presence of the living God. And, and at, at, uh, at the resurrection of Jesus, or on the cross when he dies, the, tail, the veil of the temple, it says, is torn in two. And the reason for that is in that moment, now the Holy Spirit is breaking free. Now, hear me, the, the Spirit was not confined to a box ever, but symbolically, when the veil of the temple was torn or rent, it, the Holy Spirit is coming forward from that place to no longer reside just in a temple, but now you are the temple. That was the holiest place on all of earth was in that room, in that box, that holy of holies, that ark of the covenant. And now what does that say about us, right? This is what Paul is saying. We now, every believer, whether you're young believer, new believer, old believer, feeble believer, strong believer, it doesn't matter. You have the Holy Spirit. You do. Whether you feel that, experience that, have had certain gifts or not, it doesn't matter. You have the presence of God with you, residing with you, empowering with you. And he has one huge aim in your life, and it's to love you, 
assure you that you're a son and daughter of God and ultimately to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ, which is holiness. And so what he's saying is in light of that, in light of the fact that you are the temple of the living God, again, whether you became a Christian this week or you're 90 and you've been walking with him for 70 years, you're the temple of the living God. And he's reminding you now, now so what, what fellowship would we have with such darkness as he's describing? Now, I admit this passage is a little confusing and it doesn't even seem to line up in some ways with some other things that Paul has taught us in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 5, Paul says that we're to live our lives as ambassadors for Christ, meaning to people who don't know Jesus. People who don't yet know him. We are called to be ambassadors for Jesus. If you were here on that week, we talked about that means being true friends with people, loving them, having them in your life, showing hospitality to people who, who don't yet share our faith, not manipulating those relationships, but actually living in real friendship with people. So we're called to be ambassadors for Christ, and Paul says to have a ministry of reconciliation, to tell people, like, I am reconciled to God, not because I'm good, but because of all that God has done for me in Jesus, and you can be reconciled, too, to him by his life, death, resurrection, and faith in him. So, like, doesn't that seem strange that now Paul would say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? What fellowship do you have? What do, you know, all these very intense statements. So what is he talking about? In Corinth, the competing religion was um, pagan temple worship. Like, we joke around and call each other pagans. <laughs> uh, at least I do. Uh, and so, um, but pastor, pastor humor, you know. But the reality is, these were literal pagans. Uh, these, in, in Corinth, if you weren't a Christian at this time, in all likelihood, you might have been Jewish but if you weren't either of those, you were going to a local temple where the whole thing was, was worshiping a pagan idol, a literal idol made uh, to a, a pagan deity where they would also sacrifice animals to that deity. And in addition to that, there was temple prostitution and the abuse of women and children. Enormous sexual immorality, enormous, uh, an, an enormous example of idolatry. And so Paul is saying... And meanwhile, what's going on in Corinth is members of this church, just like all of us, there is a, there's a situation where we're being called into newness of life by faith in Jesus, and yet there's a reality where we struggle with our old way of life, do we not? And so in reality, in light of that, what's happening is these followers of Jesus, stick with me, uh, in Corinth, they, uh, they... <laughs> That kid's a pagan, okay? No. <laughs> totally, please forgive me. Please come back. I know them. That's why I said it. Okay, so. Man, see, I am going to regret that, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. I'm going to have to email him and say, you know I was joking, right? So, you know I was joking, right? Okay, so. What were we talking about? Oh. <laughs> Members of the church in Corinth, are being tempted to go back to pagan temple worship where there's prostitution, abuse of women, abuse of children, and, and animal sacrifice to pagan deities. And they're mixing. They're mixing their faith, okay? 
in, in Jesus, the, the, the living king who conquered sin and death with pagan idolatry. And that's why Paul is so intensely saying, have nothing to do with these relationships. And let's talk about what it means to be yoked. He says, do not be unequally yoked. And it's a farming metaphor. And, and you probably know this, uh, but when a farmer would work his fields back then, he would yoke two animals together, right, to pull some sort of implement. The yoking process would only work, or maybe a cart, would, when, you, <laughs> when they were very similar and similar in size and weight and strength. If you yoked an ox, for example, with a pony, a little tiny pony, what would happen? The pony would just be taken for a ride, right? I mean, no matter where the ox would want to go, that's where they were going. There'd be no sense of unity. There'd be no way that they're both pulling equally. Just ox goes this way, that's where they're headed. And so what Paul is saying is this, be very very careful that you're not unequally yoked, that, that you are yoking yourself also to someone that shares your faith so that you can pull basically in the same direction, and so that if you're yoked to someone in life that is, does not share your faith, and if you're not careful, if they're stronger than you in many ways, they're going to pull you away from the life that God intends for you, in the very opposite direction of where the Lord would have you for your life. And so this is why Paul is saying this is so important, this unequal yoking. Now, he's saying be careful not to hit yourself, bind yourself, yoke yourself to someone whose conduct and life will lead you or control you to the old way of life opposed to the new way of life. Because Paul's theology in 2 Corinthians, I think, pivots largely upon chapter 2, or chapter 5, verse 17. I think that may be one of the most central parts of this letter, where he says this, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. Newness of life. And there's always a battle, there's always a struggle for us between the old way of life and the new way of life, but Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, we are to pursue the new way of life. You're the temple of God. And if you're unequally yoked with someone, there's a sense or idea the other person is controlling you and taking you somewhere you should not go. So some questions, though. There's, there's all these obvious practical questions, and I, I wish we had time where I could just do like literal Q&A, but I'm going to do my best to raise some of the questions I think people might have. First of all, should a Christian who's married to a non-Christian then divorce uh, their, their spouse on the basis of unbelief? They're unequally yoked. You're, you're, you're married to someone who does not share your faith. What should you do? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, no, you don't, you don't divorce that person on that basis. No, that would not be reason for divorce. Instead, you're to love them, serve them, and encourage them. Second, does that mean you should only have Christian employers? Also, no. In Colossians and Ephesians, he talks about how even in the situation with slavery, that, that servants should serve their masters, their unbelieving master in such a way, in such humility and love, that they may even see their cruel masters come to know the Lord. And it's not, it's not endorsing slavery, it's just dealing with the reality of it in their culture and saying, serve, even the unbelieving one. It, what about employment that requires you to do something that's unethical or ungodly? That's a different story. If you are being employed in something that's literally against God's will, taking advantage of the poor, or, or would lead into like people into sexual immorality or stuff, you might need to rethink your employment. 
another one. Does that mean you can only have non-Christian friendships? Of course not. Paul's already said, like, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Jesus. We have a ministry of reconciliation. But I do think what's important here is for you to consider your age in life, you, your ability, and your strength. The weaker you are in faith and in life, the younger you are, the weaker you are that you might be in faith, then you have to be even more careful. So students especially, you need to be even, in my opinion, more careful who you're yoking yourself up with, who your friend group is, who, who you're yoking with emotionally in a sense. Why? Because as you are developing your sense of who you are, your identity in Christ, uh, who you're going to be as a human being, there's a greater likelihood of being drugged or led into a life that God does not have or intend for us. If you are in recovery, be mindful of relationships that could lead you back into those addictions. Flee those relationships. If some of your friends and the trajectory of those relationships are based entirely, like if you're a new follower of Jesus and you have all these friends and, and the basis of your relationship is on hedonism and another fun pastor word, or, you know, like in, and lust and things that would fuel the old way of life, flee those relationships. Paul would say so. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 would say so as well. When is this passage applied? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Class, when, when, is, when do we apply this text? In only one setting. What is it? Marriage. Getting married and dating. And it's really less in marriage because once somebody's married, it's like, well, you're married. But it's more in dating and, and, and uh, in engagement, right? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Question, was Paul talking about marriage in this context? Believe it or not, he's not. He's talking about people going to temple worship. That's what he's talking about. So contextually, this actually has nothing to do with marriage. But theoretically, and like applying this, does this have everything to do with marriage? I would say, yes, it does. Technically, no, the context is not what he's talking about. But as we apply it, the truth is, I doubt any of you are being tempted right now to go to a pagan temple and, and animal sacrifice to it this afternoon. <laughs> but there are other temptations. Does it have anything to say about decisions regarding dating and marriage? I think it does. The word hitched is what we use, right, for getting married. It's the same idea of being yoked. Let's get hitched. Let's get yoked together. It's, it's obviously, if, if our most intimate relationships have the power to influence towards more Christ-likeness or less, right, then there's no, there's no more intimate relationship in a human perspective, from God's design at least, than marriage. The two shall become one flesh. You are bound together. And in a marriage, what you want profoundly is to be building a life together based on the same desires and goals. And for one person, if they say, my greatest relationship in my life is my love for Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose from the dead for me. I want to build my life upon him as my rock in my foundation, and I'm yoking, I'm choosing to yoke with someone that says, I don't share that same value. I don't intend to raise our children that way. I don't intend to prioritize our money, our time. Our, uh, you see what I'm saying? It makes it very difficult to build a life together, to yoke together in that same way and not have the same blueprints together. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. 
and many of you may represent that. Some of you got married to someone that was not a follower of Jesus, and your spouse became a follower of Jesus, and we rejoice in that. It's awesome. Some of you are married, uh, and your spouse, you're a follower of Jesus, and your spouse isn't, and they fully support you, and it's, it's not a dragging away. It's not a yoking relationship where they're taking you away. They support you in your faith. You're growing in your faith, and there are some examples of that even in this church, and for that, we are incredibly thankful but that doesn't mean we should say, I will pursue being the exception to the rule. And so if you're in a situation where you're considering marriage or dating and, and, or you want to be married someday, the, the call, Paul, would, would warn us, be careful because it's all of our most intimate relationships have the ability to empower us to grow in our faith or to not. Our most intimate relationships have the power to tear down to build up our faith and our pursuit of holiness. And we've only been talking about it from the negative perspective this morning, but I want to end by talking about it from the positive perspective. This isn't just a call away from something, but it's a call towards something, even more so. Yes, it's a call to not be yoked to one type of relationship, but ultimately it is a call to be yoked to another type of relationship, which is powerful. It's powerful. Hebrews 10 says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. This is why we gather every Sunday. We sing, we pray, we do liturgy, we, we, we hear preaching, we take the Lord's Supper together, all with the intent to literally stir one another up to love and good deeds. We have gospel communities. We have multiple small groups around this city that meet every single week, some for men, some for women, some for couples, some for single. We have all these groups, and the whole reason for their existence is to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Gospel community exists for that very reason, not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, of course, it's a call to be weary and, and careful of some relationships and to even mo- remove yourself from some relationships, but even more so, I would say, it's a call to be moving towards relationships, gospel-centered relationships. Just this week, I was struck by how powerful that is. We spent time with our staff and elders in two different meetings this week and, and with long seasons of prayer and sharing with one another. We started the meeting for another reason. We didn't even get to the agenda because it just broke out into these long times of prayer. First with the staff, later this week with the elders. I got a text from one of the elders this week saying, look, just, just feeling the need, and would you pray for all of us, uh, the, the pastors, the elders, just feeling the need for extra prayer for, for every one of us. And one of our elders texted and said, like, let's, let's pray individually for each one of our pastors and elders this week. Let's each take turn. Like, today will be uh, great. This will be, you know, so-and-so's time each week. And just praying. And I was just so encouraged by that. Where would I be without those brothers in my life? This week, I met with other pastors and leaders from a network that we've been a part of for years called the Surge Network, which is this local network. If you've not heard of it, I look forward to sharing more about it, but where churches from around the valley are connected together for the sake of gospel mission, and we meet together, and we pray together, and I've been on the board of that for a long time, and so I'm meeting with other pastors from around the city this week, and, and we had an agenda, but to be honest, we didn't even hardly get to it because we were listening to one another and praying for one another, and, and pastors do work, by the way, but like we, we were encouraging one another. I just walked away from that moment feeling 
I am so thankful for these brothers and sisters in the Lord that I can share. And we were honest with one another. You know, everyone around the room was suffering in some way personally, and we shared deeply about it. We scratched the agenda and just prayed for one another deeply. I'm so inspired to love Jesus more because of them. I think of my relationship with Becky. Where would I be without Becky Brown? (laughs) Where would I be without Carson Joyner? And I mean that. Uh, 15 years of friendship. I've been in friendship with this brother for 15 years. We planted this church together. We've been together 15 years. I don't know of another friendship that I've had for that long in the same city for, for that length of time. Where would I be in my life without that brother's prayer, calling me to the carpet, calling me out on stuff I need to grow on. I'm a better man because of that friendship. They're celebrating 11 years today, by the way. It's not just a call away from something. It's a call towards something. Gospel community. This church exists for gospel communities, and a bunch of other churches in the city do too. We are called to live our lives together. And I just want to say, as Carson and I have gotten back from our, uh, our sabbaticals, we have not done the best job of communicating about that yet, but we're about to. We have gospel community ready and available for you. And if you're not in that kind of community yet, in the coming weeks here, we're going to be calling and explaining how you can do that, what it looks like, how to get more involved. But even today, write on a card in there, I would like to be connected to a gospel community. Talk to me. Talk to one of the other pastors. We can get you connected, man, and we will. We're going to be working harder on that this year than ever. Living our lives in gospel community where you're honest, where you're real. I'm thankful for my gospel community that I'm in where we're real together, honest. It changes your life. Finally, we are called to holiness in the fear of the Lord, Paul says, And this journey of seeking to be more like Jesus, it begins and it ends with our acceptance in Jesus, and you need to hear that. Please, if you hear anything this morning, as you leave today, this is not a call to holiness uh, based apart from acceptance. You are accepted in Jesus Christ. You are saved not because you're holy. You're saved because he is holy, because of his life and his death and his resurrection. And then, because of that good work on your behalf, he sent you the power of the Holy Spirit. He's at work in your life, and he's calling you to newness of life. But it's a journey. It's a lifelong journey, and it's hard. And it's sometimes you feel it, and you love it, and you see it. And at other times, you struggle, and you cry, and you strain, and you feel as far from God as you possibly can be. But God is at work. Amen? God is at work, but there are these pivotal moments, these pivotal decisions, and some of you are in one of those moments. Will you decide a relationship based on what will cause you to grow more in the Lord or less? The decisions we make matter. Paul says so. God is sovereign. God's grace is over all things, but these pivotal moments, they matter because they either move us towards Christ or away. Let's pray.